can I have a show of hands? How many people have skydived before? It's about half a dozen. Serious kudos to you guys. Put your hand up if you haven't skydived before, but the thought of plummeting at breakneck speed towards the earth just fills you with excitement. There's a few, okay. I found some pictures that will probably inspire you. Some people clearly having fun on a Saturday afternoon. Check this out. This is what you're missing out on, guys. Look at this. Hey? Some of you, look at those eyes. Some of you are just thinking to yourself, any activity where adult nappies would be useful probably crosses the line. <clears throat> you're wondering, how do I get to my message from there? There is a link. One of the the best lectures I've ever heard on leadership was by a guy uh, who had headed the behavioural science and leadership arm of West Point, which is the US military's academy for their top officers. A guy by the name of uh, General Tom uh, Kolditz. And what I remember from his lecture that just stood out for me, that he, he as well as being heading this, he was also the, the lead guy in their uh, sports skydiving team. So he's done, you know, had skydived and led people through more skydives than we've had dinners combined. But the thing that stood out to me in his lecture is this little speech that he would give before he took someone up for a skydive for their first time. And you can imagine your heart racing, thinking, oh my goodness, that this is what I'm about to do. But he had almost a rote speech that he would go through and what stood out was that he wouldn't just say to them, you're going to be okay. Everyone wants to hear that, and that's important to hear. But he was just so good at telling them not just that they would be okay, but why they were going to be okay. He says, I'm General Tom Kolditz. I mean, the name seriously inspires confidence. I'm General Tom Kolditz. I've done this so many thousand times. This is exactly what's going to happen when we go up. This is exactly what I'm going to do, and this is what you're going to do. And it doesn't matter if anything goes wrong because we've got a plan B and this is exactly what we're going to do in that situation. And even if that doesn't work, this is what's going to happen this is, and just went through. And he just inspired so much confidence that people are kind of just skipping towards the plane, you know. But it wasn't just that he told them they were going to be okay. He's a great leader and he explained clearly why they were going to be okay. In the series that we're going through, we're... we're looking at what Jesus taught his disciples the night before he was crucified. The world is about to cave in for these guys. And as the perfect leader, Jesus sits them down and he looks around the room over the dinner table and he says to them, not just that, they were going to be okay, but exactly why they were going to be okay. And even as he was about to send them out to reach the world for him and the biggest mission ever given to any humans... He's telling them not just that they were going to be okay doing this, but exactly why they were going to be okay. And what is so cool is that the promise he made, the reason why they were going to be okay doing this, we receive as well. It's the same promise as made to us. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, I'd love you to grab your Bibles and turn with me please to John chapter 14. And we'll read together from our verse 15. John chapter 14. What I'm going to do, because this is quite a long passage, I'm going to kind of 
surf over the passage pretty quickly. I'm just going to stop a few times to help us just understand it as we're going through. There, there is a lot to understand and there's some huge subjects. But then I'm going to come back and I just want to focus on one particular part of it, which I think you'll understand why as we move, as we move forward. So John chapter 14, reading from verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples that night, he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor. Some of your translations might say another advocate, another comforter, another friend even. To be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So remember, Jesus has just said in the previous chapter, I'm not going to be with you much longer, I'm going away. And so they are understandably apprehensive, confused, shocked, worried. And he says, look, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send someone a replacement for me. He goes on in verse 19, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. My public ministry is coming to an end, but you're going to see me again. Most likely talking about appearing after the resurrection. And he says, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you'll realize that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So this is not a universal promise. This is to people who are in relationship with Jesus. And the sign of being in relationship with Jesus is that you love and you obey him. You don't earn his love. You don't earn the relationship by obedience. But the obedience is a natural consequence. And then Judas, verse 22, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Saying, I'm not just making this up. This is, this is the word of God I'm giving to you. But then he goes on. He says, all this I've spoken to you while still with you. We've, we've, kind of, we've been over this. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This replacement is going to make it clear to you. And as a result of that, in verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. He's saying, I've got, I've got this, guys. It's, it's going to be okay. I'm not physically going to be with you anymore, but my replacement is going to help you understand and you will have peace as a result of that. Verse 28, he goes on, You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. He, he calls the shots. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I'll not speak to you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So in short, things are about to go to custard, guys, but it's okay. I've got this. I'm just doing what the Father has asked, and it's going to be okay. Come now, let us leave. Now, a lot of you are probably 
reading through that, scratching your head, thinking that is actually not that easy to follow. And even when Jesus answers the questions, that's not easy to follow. That's quite difficult. And you would be quite right. And to be honest, the disciples didn't really get it either. Hence the promise of this replacement for Jesus who would help them get it over time. And there are some really big concepts that are being hinted at in this. The Trinity among others. You know, These, these are huge ideas. So what I want to do, though, is, is to boil this down because the most important idea here is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, you're going to be okay. And not just that they're going to be okay, but why they're going to be okay. And the reason for that is the spirit that he's promising. And the first thing that we notice is in verse 16 when Jesus talks about the spirit, he talks about another counsellor or another advocate, another comforter. And the word another there means another of the same kind. If you can picture for yourself a teacher who has just looked after a class of new entrants for six months and there's a relationship there and there's a trust and these helpless children who have come and who are just so dependent on this teacher who they trust and they feel loved by and then she gets a job at another school or he gets a job at another school and so to stop them worrying, the teacher says, look, it's going to be okay. There's going to be another one coming who cares for you, who's going to look after you. Another one like me. And that's the point here. It's another like Jesus. So what Jesus had been doing, leading the disciples, helping them in their relationship with God, comforting them, counseling them, the replacement is going to do the same thing. So if this replacement is like Jesus, we need to understand, well, what, what is the replacement like? The first thing that we see is in verse 16. It's quite interesting. He says, He'll ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you, another counselor or advocate, the Spirit of truth. And Jesus goes on, The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. And throughout the rest of Jesus' upper room discourse, he always refers to the Spirit as him or he. And what's really interesting is for a Greek reader of this, they would be saying, well, in Greek, um, if you think about language, and those of you who particularly have another language other than English, you'll know that in, in a lot of languages, uh, nouns can have uh, different genders, masculine, feminine, or neuter. And in the Greek language, spirit is neuter. Spirit is an it. It's not, a, it's not a he or a him. But when Jesus refers to the spirit, every time he talks about him or he. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is that the spirit is a person. The spirit is a thinking, rational, relational, active person that you can know and have a relationship with. So in the same way as Jesus was a person, a personal being that you could relate to, he's saying this one coming after me, is personal as well. The spirit is not just some sort of impersonal force, not just some essence, not just some outlook on life like someone who has a positive spirit about them. The spirit of God is a personal being. In addition to being like Jesus in that he's personal, the spirit is also God, just as Jesus is God, just as God the Father is God. And a really clear example of this we see in, in uh, Acts chapter 5. Some of you will be familiar with the book of Acts where the church is born. Jesus has, has risen. He's appeared to his disciples. He's gone back to heaven. 
and the church is, is seeking to reach the world, and it's just exploding. Thousands upon thousands of people are coming to understand the truth about Jesus, and as a result, people are just so excited. They're giving generously, some of them even selling land and just giving the money to help feed the poor, to help spread the message about Jesus. And in that, we read this in Acts chapter 5. We read, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, keeping back part of the money in itself wasn't a big deal. It was his field. He's entitled to do that. But what becomes clear is that Ananias held out that he was giving all of the money when he didn't really. He kept some back for himself. And so we go on and we read, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Ananias had lied, in Paul's words, to the Holy Spirit. He had lied to God. And this is the important thing to understand, is that just like Jesus, the Spirit was personal, but just like Jesus, the Spirit is God. And this is the, the tip of a huge iceberg that we refer to as the Trinity. This is one of the huge ideas, difficult to understand ideas, that we see in the New Testament. And we're not going to plunge into it today, except to say that, that it exists. We have this belief in Christianity that we believe strongly there is only one God, but that that God is in three persons. And we see that in different places in the New Testament, one of the best known being when Jesus sends his disciples out on, on the greatest mission of, of history, what we call the Great Commission. And he said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go out there to the world and plug them into God. But when he says God, he describes God as the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And on different occasions, this is how God is described. And so that's why, as Christians, we hold to there being one God, but in three persons. And if you're sitting there, and perhaps you've never heard this concept before, maybe you've heard it for 20 years, and you've still got a headache, do not worry. Because this has inspired and led to Nurofen and Disparin sales for 2,000 years. This is something that we understand is so difficult to take in. But the really important thing for me, being a, in a, a kind of a cynical, difficult to convince, rational, kind of accountant-minded person, is that isn't this what we would expect from a being that is eternal, that predates the existence of the universe, then makes the decision to create the universe in all its incomprehensible vastness and magnificence? What sort of a being can do that? How foolish are we to think that, well, we can take that being and just reduce him down to a few bullet points that we can understand in a nice little package or perhaps put on a little diagram in our fifth form textbook? That's just not the real God that really exists. That's not the God that the evidence around us points to. And quite frankly, I'm not worried that we have this God that I can't understand, that there are elements about that I find so confusing because I want him to be 
magnificent and majestic and even terrifying and beautiful towards me. That's the type of God that inspires complete trust. That's the type of God that we want to worship forever. A God that we can't take in who is just so unbelievably magnificent and who is also difficult to understand and take in. The best line I've read about the Trinity is that we can apprehend it without being able to comprehend it. That is, we can accept it, just take it for what it is, even though we can't understand it. Because God has revealed, this is what I'm like. This is, this is what I am. And so I accept that, even though I may not be able to comprehend it. But I actually see it as a fantastic thing about God. I don't want a God with a small g that I can reduce down to three bullet points. I'm very happy to have a God who is just incomprehensibly great, even to the point where I can't take him in. And this is how the Spirit is described. The Spirit who is one of three members of the Trinity that we struggle to take in because it is just so amazing. So the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is God. How, though? How is it that the Spirit is going to answer this question, you're going to be okay, and this is why? And the key to that comes into how he is described. The word that Jesus uses to describe him in verse 16, when he says, I will give you another. And some of you in your Bible, it says counselor. I don't know who, whose Bible says, I'll give you another counselor. Not that many. Might be older Bibles. My one does. It's a 1984. How many say advocate? I'll give you another. Probably. Does anyone say friend? Comforter, maybe? Very old translations. You might have comforter. Okay. So you can see when we have lots of different words that are used to describe this, straight away it's saying to us there's a richness of meaning in the word that we're looking at here. There's obviously a plurality of meaning. The word that we're looking at is parakletos. And that comes from two different Greek words. The first one being para, which means to come along beside. If you think about what a paramedic does, they come along beside you when you've got a broken leg or whatever, and they apply, they medicate you, they help you. A paramedic, a paralegal comes along beside you and helps you in a legal issue. So para, to come along beside. And kletos, which comes from kaleo, which means to call out, to, to cry out, even to contend with. And so there's a couple of ways that we can view what this is saying, the word parakletos, to come alongside and call out. And the first one is the one I have in my Bible, which says counsellor. I will send you another counsellor. Because think about what a counsellor does. Imagine I am an alcoholic or an, I'm an addict. A counsellor comes beside me and contends with me, calls out to me to guide my thinking, to challenge my thinking, to correct my thinking. And we love that. That is just a spectacular ministry. We love the counseling ministry. That's what a counselor does. And that's what the Spirit does too. He comes along beside us and he can challenge our thinking, prompt our thinking, question our thinking. Because sometimes our thinking often is just not good. Sometimes we, we are unduly hard on ourselves to the point where we see ourselves as just unredeemable. We are just so worthless. How could God ever love us? How could God ever accept us? And so the Spirit comes and gives us that confidence to say, you might be overstating your worthlessness and you're understating the grace of God. 
and the Spirit prompts us and counsels us and gives us courage in that situation, gives us insight to know that that thinking is wrong. Other end of the spectrum, and perhaps more often, is that we overstate our goodness. And we think that we have every right just to march straight into heaven, that we are just so good that God owes us. And what we'll see as we go on in the upper room discourse is that one of the key roles of the Spirit is to convict the world of its sin, to open up our eyes and help us recognize that we have no right just to march up to a holy God and expect to be accepted as if he owes us. He will convict the world of its sin. But he is getting along beside us and calling out to us, guiding our thinking. He is a counselor. Another way, though, to look at parakletos, to come along beside and call out, is not so much that of a counselor, but someone who comes along beside us and calls out for us on our behalf. Someone who comes along and contends for us like in a legal situation. And we see this in another uh, uh, another one of the letters that John wrote, in John, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. We have a parakletos with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's exactly the same word as what we have in verse 16 that is used to, to describe the Spirit. Someone who stands up and who is our representative in a legal situation, an advocate for us like in a court. And this too is what Paul says when he says in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It's a legal setting. And if you can try and picture this in your head, because this is so important, and without wanting to overly dramatize it, I want you to try and imagine a picture where you are sitting in a court of law, and you are in the defendant's box. And it's pretty much the worst day of your life. This is the trial of your eternal life. And you look around the court for familiar faces, and there are none. And your, your opponent, who the Bible calls the accuser, is just screaming and spewing every allegation he can think of, every accusation that he can possibly throw at you. And as you sit there, the worst part of his presentation is that you're listening and you are thinking, he knows me. And he's exactly right. Because he's just throwing it out. You have lied. And so what does that make you? Well, that makes you a liar. And you've asked for forgiveness and then you do it again. And you would probably do it tomorrow if you were trapped in a situation that looked bad. You would probably lie again to save your face. And you look at other people, other people who need your concern, need your money, need your love. And how often are you rushing to them? You put yourself first. So what does that make you? That makes you selfish. You are a selfish liar. You hurt the people around you who love you. You blow it and you know how awful it is and yet you do it again and again. And you look at other people, you look at other people in your church and you judge them. And you look down on them and you look at their lives and then you go and do exactly the same thing. What does that make you? That makes you a hypocrite. You are a selfish, lying hypocrite. And the list just goes on and on. But as you're listening, you know that the accusations are true. 
and you just sink into your seat. And he screams and he spews forth all sorts of accusations. And then he finishes and he lowers his voice to a murmur. And he just says, he just closes his case with words that just cut through your heart like ice. And he says, you have no credibility at all. You have no case. You have no right to call yourself a child of God. Not credible. Not true. And the room is silent. And all you can do is hang your head in shame. Because all of the accusations are true. And then there's a noise at the back of the courtroom. And the doors come open. And you hear a shuffle as all of the heads turn round to see. And then strong footsteps stride down the middle of the room. Because your advocate has arrived. The Spirit of God is your advocate in this courtroom. And he stands up and with a voice so confident like a thousand thunders and a thousand choirs just rolled into one, he stands up and he testifies. And he says, this man, this woman, all of that is true, but he is forgiven. And all of that has been paid for. He is redeemed. He is ransomed. He is adopted. And he is a child of God. And as he closes his case, he looks over at you and he says with just the most tender heart you have ever heard, he says some words that you've heard before and they just are so familiar. He says, this is my son. This is my daughter who I love. You've heard those words before. That's exactly what Paul is saying when he says the spirit testifies that we are children of God. The Spirit is our advocate, ready to stand up in front of anyone for us and testify that we are children of God. And the most awesome thing is that this promise wasn't just for the 11 frightened, confused young men who sat around Jesus the night before he died. This promise is for everyone. Because the Spirit... Is indwells all Christians. There is no such thing as a Christian who has not received the Spirit. Paul makes this really clear in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 when writing specifically about the Spirit. He says, You, however, are not controlled by the flesh, but are controlled by the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So the first thing to notice here is look how easily Paul interchanges Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, just as if they're the same thing. And so what that clearly says is that for Paul, Christ is God. That's just He doesn't even have to explain it. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is he says if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So there's no such thing in Paul's mind as someone who belongs to Christ who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ. Because Paul says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, well, you don't belong to Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. Paul said the, exactly the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1, where he fleshes this out, and he says this so beautifully, writing to the Ephesian church. He says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, having exercise that faith, having become Christians, 
you were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So when were they marked out in, by the Spirit? When they believed. They believed, that's when they became a Christian, and they were marked out by the Spirit. That's when it happens. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. But look at what Paul says about that. If I highlight a couple of things, he says, you can see in bold there, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What Paul's getting at here is back in his day, you could mark something, imagine a package that, that's wrapped up, and then it's sealed with some wax, and, and on that wax, you could make an imprint, perhaps with your personalized ring or your personalized stamp, and the recipient of that package would know who the owner of the package was because it's marked with the Steve Young seal. We are marked with the Holy Spirit as a seal. And so even though we say when you become a Christian, you are indwelt, all of us, with the Holy Spirit, and you might say, well, I don't, I don't feel physically any different. I didn't really notice anything. Should I have felt something? Should I feel? That's not the Spirit's first role. Transformation is not instantaneous. That's not his first job. His first job is not transformation, but identification. As soon as you become a Christian, you are marked out you are sealed as belonging to God with the Holy Spirit, the most personal mark that God can possibly put on you. The second thing is that the Spirit is, Paul says he is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, I know that in the next few months, the ladies are going to be planning on getting the biggest TV screens they can possibly get their hands on because the Rugby World Cup is coming. Am I right or right? All of the ladies, they're nodding. Gifts to their husbands, and that's why we love you ladies so much. So you go down to Noel Leeming and 82-inch, close, but I can do better, you know, and you just find the biggest mother of all flat-screen TVs. They have to import it, especially for you. It was only in a brochure. So you say, I desperately want it, can't fit it. In, in my semi-truck today, but I'll come back for it. And so you say, look, I'll give you a deposit, and you rummage around in your pocket, and you pull out a dollar coin. You say, I'll be back for it. How seriously are they going to take you? $25,000 TV, $1 deposit. Are they going to be believing you? Yeah, good, good one, buddy. Good one, honey, I should say. But if you say, look, I... I'm going to leave you this most precious possession of mine, something that means so much to me. I would say child, but sometimes, you know, that, that won't work anyway, but something that they know you just love so, so dearly, something so personal, so precious to you. How confident are they going to be that you're coming back for that TV? That's the picture we have here when Paul says that God puts his own spirit in us as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing that he is coming back to collect us because his love for us is so spectacularly great. There is no way he is not coming to collect you because his spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. 
when we understand the Spirit in this way, when we look at him, this personal being who is God as Jesus is God, the counselor, the advocate that we have all received, can you start to understand why when Jesus looked around the room at these young men who were confused and scared and he's saying to them not just that they would be okay, but why they're going to be okay because this replacement would come. We start to understand why it was believable. And I know a lot of you, I know I think to myself, I just wish the Spirit, it could be more obvious. I wish the Spirit could sort of do more in my life. But when we stop and we look at what happened in history to these men, and the way that when the Spirit came in replacement of Jesus, we read the book of Acts, and look at the way they weren't just okay, but they went on to change the world. And if you look at the book of Acts with your Holy Spirit glasses on, you will just be surprised as to how many times the Spirit is mentioned, that he's acting and he's restoring relationships and he's convicting people of sin and he's opening up eyes and he is changing the world. And so the promise that Jesus made to the disciples absolutely came true. Two questions I want us to finish with that I think help us answer the question, so what does that actually mean for us today? The first one is, have you trusted in Jesus as your saviour? God sent him as an advocate, as someone to represent you. If I was to say to you today, why should God accept you? If you were to die today, why should God welcome you into heaven, into his presence? It's quite likely the most important question you will ever face in your life. doesn't matter if you were brought up in a Christian home. doesn't matter if this is the first time anyone's even asked you that question. It's the most important question you will face in your life. It's also the question that makes Christianity different from all of the other world's religions. Because all of the religions that are trying to get people and plug them into God to, to restore the relationship with God will have a list of things to do. Five-fold pillar, this path, that path, attend, pray, give, do this, do that. And once you've done those, perhaps if your good deeds outweigh your bad, perhaps if you've got rid of your karma, you'll eventually get there. Christianity is just uniquely different from all of those. Christianity is not about do this, do that, do this. Jesus says it is done. Christianity doesn't say you have to do all of this and then you earn the relationship. Christianity says that Jesus came to us to himself restore that relationship. And the way he did that is that when he died on the cross that we celebrate every Easter... All of our failings of the lists that we could never do, and God knows it perfectly well. All of the times that we let God down, all the times we wandered away, we, we broke his rules, all of the way we fell short. God put the punishment that we deserve for that as the perfect judge. God put it on Jesus, and Jesus willingly accepted that, took our punishment on himself, lived the perfect life, didn't deserve any punishment, but took ours Instead, so that now he can exchange his perfection, his righteousness, for our unrighteousness. And there's no question of us being guilty anymore. We've exchanged it. If we've entrusted ourselves to him, then he takes all of our punishment away. He gets rid of all of our guilt. This is the way Paul put it. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, he says, We implore you. On Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you trusting in Jesus to get you right with God? Because if you are trusting in your own goodness and having done a whole lot of things, you're not doing what the Bible says that you need to do to be right with God. The Bible says, look, it's just so much easier. You can't do that. You will never achieve the standard, the level that you would have to. So I've sent my son to do it for you. And all you have to do is entrust yourself to him. But you need to come through him on those terms. And it's that easy. It's a gift. And some of you are saying to yourself, some of you who have never made that step are saying, it's too easy. It's too good to be true. I can't believe it. I can't accept it. And I can understand that. Some are saying, I want to do some stuff so I can say, I got there. I earned it. But that's just not God's offer. God's offer is easier because he wants to make it easy. He wants to welcome people. And so if in your head you're, you're, you're hearing one voice saying it's, it, it's too good to be true, it's too hard to accept, can I ask you to listen to the other voice that's saying, you know what, this is true. Why don't you trust it? Why don't you trust him? Because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit prompts us and causes us to, to accept what Jesus has promised. And so can I suggest that you listen to the voice that says you can trust this, you can respond to this. That's the first question. Are you trusting in Jesus as your saviour? If you never have and you'd love to talk about it more, I'm going to be down the front after the service. I would love more than anything to talk to you about that. Talk to the person you came with because I know that they would love to talk to you about it too. Second question, for those who have made that decision, who have entrusted themselves to Jesus, are you listening to the Spirit as your counsellor? Again, I'm sure we would love an audible voice like what Graham talked about. I would dearly love that. I would love uh, the Spirit to write down on my you know, diary at the start of the day, Steve, this is what's coming up, this is what you've got to do, buddy. You're going to hit it out of the park, it's going to be awesome. But it just doesn't seem to be, unfortunately, how he works. He prompts us, though. One of the things you'll notice when you become a Christian is that he doesn't help you all of a sudden to get everything right, but he makes you feel really lousy when you make things wrong. And he heightens our consciences, which is a good thing, because that prompts us to be more compassionate, to be more gracious with others, to be more patient, to, to display what Jesus is like. That's one of the main tools that he uses. So when he prompts you to pray for yourself or others, how responsive are you? When he prompts you to speak up for others or perhaps prompts you to keep your mouth shut, what are you doing with your tongue? When we read, Paul describes that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, how much of an effort are we making to give the, sword, to give the Spirit this tool that he wants to use the most? The sword of the Spirit, the word of God to sculpt us and shape us. How responsive are we? How much are we listening to the Spirit as our counsellor. Because that's what the disciples did. And we read that they went on to do incredible things. I love the way, um, I think it's Gary Burge puts it, he says, as God was at work on the cross in Christ to save us, now God is at work in the Spirit to transform us. God is on our side. He is at work renewing us and loving us. This is the gospel. So when Jesus sat down that night with his disciples, he wasn't just telling them, guys, you're going to be okay. This is, 
not just telling them that they would be okay. He was telling them why they would be okay. And we've got the same reason, because we have the same spirit who is at work in us. God is on our side. He is at work renewing us and loving us. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christ and the good news of the spirit that he sends. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to stop and just say thank you so, so much. Uh, We are so human. We are so fickle. There are a thousand accusations that we throw at ourselves, let alone what the enemy could throw at us. And yet you've saved us. And we are so, so grateful for that. And we want to reflect our gratitude to you. We want to pass on the message to others so that they would experience this amazing gospel, this amazing good news too. So we just want to ask, would you help us? Would you help us to be responsive, receptive, that we would listen and we would respond when your spirit prompts us, when he heightens our consciences, reminds us of how undeserving we are, but how great your grace is and help us to be responsive when he prompts us to reach out for you as well. We want to be directed by him, directed by you for your glory. Please help us to do that because we so desperately need it. Amen. Thank you, Steve.